Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another great episode of Eat Hair, Grow Hair, the podcast where we explore, discuss, and ask questions about the world of Eat Hair, Grow Hair. I'm joined today by our correspondent, Benny Schultz. Hello. Hi, Ben. How have you been doing this week? I've been great, and uh, looking into some really interesting uh, stuff about hair and art. Yes, so actually the topic today is fine arts and culture in the world of Eat Hair, Grow Hair, uh, something we've been getting a lot of questions about and something I think is going to be really exciting to explore. Uh, we're actually joined today by our special guest, uh, Ms. Amy Sands, a self-described tastemaker in our world. And Amy, I think that's really going to apply to the world of Eat Hair, Grow Hair as well. I hope so. Uh, so without further ado, I think we're going to jump into your segment, Ben, uh, and then we'll proceed with the Q&A from there. Could you set us up with a bit of context? Um, yeah, this is kind of a look at some history of art and culture in the world of Eat Hair, Grow Hair, um, kind of how it evolved, some famous uh, artists in, the, in this world, and uh, just giving us some background to uh, propel our discussion. Well, as we do every week, let's take it away. Expression. Culture. Art. These are essential components of what we call civilization, and to understand, to explain to our fellow man how we see the world. In Eat Hair, Grow Hair, it is no different, except that in EHGH, a great portion of the world is seen through hair. It shapes our understanding and our daily experience, and therefore, our expression. To find an example of this, let's go back to the dawn of time. A world filled with hunter-gatherers and danger around every turn. In this world, we find cave paintings left behind by our ancestors. The most famous example is in the Cheveux Cave in southern France. The crude yet beautiful depictions show the beasts that early man hunted with particular emphasis on the texture and the patterning of their furry coats. We see it time and again Hair in art is a thread woven throughout EHGH history. Artifacts traced to the early civilizations of the Indus Valley depict many armed gods with long flowing hair. One famous deity's signature characteristic is long looping hair that forms intricate patterns only to end in the mighty god's mouth. This theme of cyclicality is very common in early hair art. Sometimes this appears with a figure eating one's own hair. Sometimes it is with a chain of individuals eating the hair of their neighbor. In any case, it is clear that hair to these early peoples was seen as a symbol of renewal, rebirth, and the circle of life. As art progressed, and more realistic representations of humans and animals came into style, it is quite clear that special attention was paid to the subject's hair. Even when a face may have been dull and expressionless, the hair surrounding the face would be full of story and incredible detail. During the Renaissance, artists mastered capturing the depth, quality, and light of hair. Capelli was perhaps the most famous Italian artist of the Renaissance. It is said that when working on his masterpiece, Lady of the Adriatic, he spent nearly three times as much time on the unknown subject's hair 
than he did on the rest of the painting in its entirety. He painstakingly painted each individual strand blowing in the wind, and the result is simply breathtaking. Hair is still very much an interesting subject to contemporary artists, though it is not as often represented with the traditional realism. Instead, today's artists use lines, shapes, and even negative space to symbolize hair and our connection to it. Jackson Follock famously ate copious amounts of hair to grow long, sweeping locks that he then coated in paint and flung against his canvas, creating chaotic, colorful masterpieces. Indeed, hair and its relation to humanity is a favorite theme of sculptors and painters alike. But in addition to more traditional forms, hair itself is considered an art. The pharaohs and elites of Egypt were obsessed with hair, as were many ancient ruling classes. In the Egypt of EHGH, elaborate hairstyles were eaten and grown as a sign of status and wealth. In some cases, royals had such massive dues that hidden supports were needed just to keep their heads upright, and servants were often required to keep their hair from touching the ground. From ancient Egypt to China to the royal courts of medieval Europe, nearly every ruler had some form of royal hairstylist solely dedicated to designing hairdos, purchasing quality locks, and styling their master's hair. The more outlandish and elaborate, the better. While some examples of these hairpieces are preserved in paintings or otherwise, many only remain in written descriptions, and many more have been lost to hairstry. One of the single best ways we can come to understand the people of EHGH is through the eyes of artists. In their pieces, we find depictions of common life and royalty. We share in their dreams and fears, and we learn how hair is weaved into culture and history. Ben, that was a phenomenally detailed segment. Thank you so much for putting it together. And I actually want to direct some of our first questions to Amy. I mean, do you have direct takeaways from this piece? Yeah, well, I guess I was picking up on a few themes. Um, Ben mentioned that hair and its relationship to humanity has been a consistent theme throughout the ages. Um, So that's something that really struck me. Also, that artists are reflecting on hair as a status symbol is something that really kind of caught my attention. Because I I think of artists kind of, on one hand, they are kind of channeling trends in society, like showing how hair is a symbol um, of status. But on the other hand, I think artists throughout the ages really challenge those ideas. So I'd be curious if there are artists who kind of rebel against that sense of hair as a status symbol. And that is true um, certainly a lot more in uh, more modern times. Uh, Back in early art uh, history days, you know, the the people that the the way the artists were making a living was uh, through commissions um, from the wealthy. And so that's why you'll see a lot lot of early art um, really catering more to the upper and ruling classes Whereas nowadays, you do see some um, challenges and some political statements uh, being made in art. So, Ben, do you think that the uh, hair-deprived and even hairless throughout hairstory are underrepresented in art? Or do you think that we just need to look a, look a little bit deeper, but there's still evidence there? I think, uh, yes, at a glimpse, I would say that the hair-deprived are uh, brushed over, perhaps. 
However, if you look deeper, um, these artists uh, wove common life into their pieces, even though the audience for these uh, these pieces were the upper class. And Amy, I want to loop back to a, a question for you. You mentioned hair as a status symbol uh, through art, and that's actually been one of the largest recurring themes that we've seen on this podcast, what hair represents, not just as a biological uh, thing on our head, to put it bluntly, but actually a larger facet of society. Do you think that there's anything in the art of our world that could even come close to scratching the surface of the significance of hair uh, represented in hair grow hair? I've been thinking about that a lot, and I was trying to think of something that was analogous to hair in our world, and the closest that I can think of is clothes, because it's a kind of clearly visible thing that you have on your body that is self-selected. Like, you can't choose, for the most part, what your facial features look like or how tall you are, but you can choose how you dress yourself, and in the same way in eat hair, grow hair, you can, to a certain extent, I mean, depending on your resources, choose how to present your hair. Um, but I think the crux of eat hair, grow hair is that hair is a biological thing and you've commodified something that's biological. So I don't think there really is anything that's a perfect analogy in art. But Amy, uh, I think you've struck the nail on the head here. Uh, it is very similar. Uh, in my research, I found it was very similar to fashion mm -hmm. um, because especially when you get into hair as art, um, you can see that, uh, you know, nowadays fashion, the, the bleeding edge of fashion is, is not necessarily practical. Um, and I think that's what we, exactly what we found, uh, with hair, especially, um, in the middle ages and, uh, earlier. And I think that we can definitely see the traces of this today, but going back, like you said, Ben, in your piece, uh, to ancient Egypt and to the Pharaohs, hair as fashion is also very big making a statement with hair being something that is a item you wear just as much as a jacket or a, or a scarf. So I think that it's, you're right that it does kind of take this role in the world, something that is colorful and eccentric, uh, but also it crosses lines. It blurs the very definition between what is fashion and what is not. Uh, yes, and I will have to say, though, that hair is so much more intimate than clothes that we put on and take off. Uh, hair is something that is processed through us, something that comes out of us and is really a symbol of uh, a very intimate expression of who we are and what we uh, believe. Absolutely. And may I add that in thinking about clothes, the other thing I also thought about was kind of personal fitness, which I feel is pretty visible these days. You get a lot of pictures of what people are eating, like how they made it, where they bought it. Um, pictures of people's bodies to show that they have, you know, the time, the resources, and they make it a priority in their life to have like a healthy body. And so hair is kind of this completely unexplored middle of the Venn diagram between uh, kind of food, fashion, and like the body sort of. I don't think we've ever explored something that brings in all three of those, those elements. And this actually loops back to a really big core of what we've been talking about again through Ben's piece, which is cyclicality. Mm. I think that hair as something that comes out of our bodies and goes into our bodies is very spiritual 
That's something that I think a lot of people day to day when you're catching the bus or going to work and eat hair, grow hair, you don't really realize it. But it is deeply ingrained in the way that we see the world and that we reflect that through art. I mean, our ancestors saw hair as this this common thread. Uh, everything else seemed to have this uh, uh, death component to it, whereas hair lasts. Um, it you know we may cut it off our heads, it may be taken off our heads, but um, ultimately it uh, lives on. And uh, I think they they really latched onto that idea. Um, so while it is cyclical and it goes through cycles, it is uh, in a sense permanent. It is, Ben. These are great points. And I want to make sure that uh, we're going to take a brief break. And when we come back, I think that we need to reflect on the, I guess, darker side, the way that hair sometimes doesn't yes. represent life, but can sometimes represent death. And I think that we're going to return to that beat in just a few minutes. Great. Some days, life's just a little too busy. I've got a meeting with a new client and it's school picture day for the kids. Luckily, even when we're pulled in every direction at once, we don't need to put our hair on hold. With Toupee to go, give your hair a boost in one fast-acting dose. Our patented delivery capsule promises three servings of hair in only 30 minutes, or we'll refund your purchase. Four out of five doctors agree, you look damn fine with Toupee to go. And we're back today with Ben Schultz and Amy Sands uh, talking about the fine arts and culture of Eat Hair, Grow Hair. Ben, I want to talk about a book that you've written recently, uh, Hair of Love, Hair of Hate. And I think that you touch on a lot of ideas in that that are really critical to the world of, of Eat Hair, Grow Hair and our own. Uh, could you talk about what Hair of Hate really means? Yeah, so the book really looks at uh, the relationship between humans and hair on a very individual and intimate level. Um, and Hair of Hate is the darker side of that relationship. Well, I think a lot of recent movements in the art community, especially the high pony movement of the late 1990s, uh, brought a lot of attention in art critics today to this hair of hate, as you say, the darker side of what hair means in the world. But is this really a new trend or is there deeper history in the art community that we need to realize? I mean, we feel like it's a new trend because this is uh, the time that it's coming up in our lifetimes, but it's certainly not new um, by any means. Uh, Hair, to many people, while it can be a great thing, to many others, it can be uh, a sign of oppression and a sign of divide. Um, it's a sign of what they don't have. And yeah, I think the High Pony movement definitely spoke to that. Um, we saw a lot of disenfranchised youth uh, using the means that they had available to them um, to express themselves and uh, how they felt about the inequalities in this world. And I think if we look back at uh, previous uh, art movements, we can we can see this uh, again and again. Um, I mentioned Jackson Follock in my piece, and a lot of his work is about aggression. And uh, I think that is um, something related to the dark side of hair, or the hair of hate. Amy, what are your thoughts on the actual technique behind these artists who use hair actually as a material, not just as a subject of art? Well, I think it speaks to the strong kind of dichotomy in the way that people embrace hair into their life. On the one hand, you know, I think most people agree that having a nice head of hair is a pleasant thing. It looks good. It keeps you warm. Um, it's a way you relate to other people and it's, you know, it makes you feel good about yourself. But on the other hand, there are these dark questions about where does the hair come from? What does it mean that you're kind of just 
throwing yourself into this world of having hair and um, having it as a part of your identity, it's kind of a troublesome relationship. So I think when artists are creating art that is using hair, it kind of expresses that. Because on the one hand, they are engaging with the hair, they're expressing themselves with the hair, but it's not a part of their body by taking it off of themselves and using it kind of as a tool. It separates themselves and provides another way to reflect on our relationship with hair without them having to actually have it on their heads and fully embrace it. Actually, to take something directly out of your piece, Ben, hair full of story, I think is a really important line to to describe what we're seeing. Um, I want to talk a bit about Capelli's Lady of the Adriatic. I think one of the most famous pieces of art, uh, even discounting the detail that goes into the hair, it's a masterpiece. Mm -hmm. But when you take hair to the equation, it becomes something entirely more. Ben, can you speak a bit to the piece? Yeah, I mean, he was really uh, a genius, far ahead of his time. His technique was exquisite. But I think also his dedication um, should be should be spoken for as well. Um, you know, he he drew or painted each individual strand of hair. He had a relationship with each one. They took hours, um, and it you know it took him nearly his whole life to to complete this masterpiece um, that we can enjoy. And I encourage all our listeners to really spend some time with it. Um, to to fall into the hair um, and to to read the story that it tells. And there's also the question of the actual woman who is the subject of the painting. I mean, that's one of the great things about hair is that every strand, um, which is kind of shown with the detail that he gave to each strand, every strand has a story, has an origin, has a history. And so, you know, those questions are part of the joy of looking at the painting. And if you look closely, you'll notice that uh, no two strands are alike. Uh, He actually meant to combine the hairs of uh, the entire world at the time um, to to show a unity um, in the piece. Um, It was kind of a subversion at the time because the the style was, you know, uh, a very uniform set of hair. But uh, through the minute detail that he had, he was able to... um, portray this uh, gathering of hairs. And where are those hairs now? That's a very good question. Many people actually say that the the Lady of the Adriatic single-handedly launched the hair renaissance, which I find very fascinating. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're going to read a Twitter question now that we got from our previous week's podcast. This is a Twitter question from Maeve Cullinane. It reads, hashtag EHGH, please tell me more about the hashtag red hair, hashtag free hair. Uh, we prefer not to go into too much of a political stance on the hashtag free hair movement, so we're going to skip that for at least this week. But we're happy to talk more about the red hair and that part of history, and I think that's a very interesting angle from an artistic perspective as well. For our new listeners that need a little bit of a background in the red hair, I would recommend listening to our second episode on economics and trade where we touch on the subject. But as a recap, the red hair was a period in world history where there was a global fear around whether or not hair could be a communal resource, and what that actually meant to our way of life on a very primal level. And it it ties back into the um, hair of hate. Uh, You know, this was an ideological divide between the communal hair movement and, uh, you know, a more market-based hair system. And in the artistic world, there were actually a lot of important pieces that came out at the time. Many, unfortunately, were destroyed thereafter, but the ones that remained 
actually paint hair literally in a very interesting light. It was something to be feared, uh, something to be many times shunned, but also something that a lot of artists and a lot of free thinkers knew still needed to be embraced despite the politics, despite the fear, despite the hatred. Yeah. I, think, I think that was really important. Yeah, during this time, you'll actually find artists, uh, one of the rare times in our history, artists actually incorporated hair into their pieces where um, actual hair was used uh, in paintings. Is that so? And, yeah, in paintings and visual art. And uh, we even had some hair sculptures. Uh, now, many of these pieces uh, were destroyed um, so that the hair could be used for um, human use. But, um, you know, that was a, a really uh, moving statement at the time. Amy, you mentioned earlier this idea of hair, an individual strand of hair having a history. And I think that the red hair represents that in spades. I think the fact that these sculptures and these art pieces that contained hair now exist in our population. I mean, what does that mean to you as an artist that you could have hair that has this legacy? You know, I think that's just one of the many facets of how hair is both a very personal thing. It's something that, you know, you consume and then it becomes a part of your body, but it's also something that connects you to everyone else and I think it's just interesting that we're still rehashing and finding ways to reinterpret these themes that you know the cavemen um, picked up on as well so cyclical both in the nature of hair but cyclical also in our interpretation and relationship to it well from cavemen to pharaohs to the red hair I can say this history we literally wear on our heads Absolutely. And to cap things off, I have one question for you, Alex. Um, you know, this week I looked at hair as art and art as hair, um, but I want to know uh, what other forms of expression there are um, and uh, maybe look at what, what types of accessories. Uh... Actually, that's a really great transition into the topic that we're going to be addressing next week, which is hats. I think that a lot of the times in our world, people take these accessories for granted. In the world of eat hair, grow hair, a simple accessory like a hat or even a bobby pin means the world to some people. A lot of a lot of everyday folk take a lot of pride in their hair, and by covering it up, by tainting it with unnatural objects, it's a massive statement. It's gone through a lot of turmoil, and the hair story around accessories and hats is something that is also really profound. I'm glad that we've talked about the arts because I think that this that knowledge is really necessary in understanding hat culture in the world of eat hair, grow hair. And I think that we're going to explore that uh, to its fullest next week. I'm really excited for your look at uh, this compelling and possibly controversial subject. Well, Amy, we want to thank you for joining us today. Um, your perspective was invaluable. I hope that you can come back again. Thank you so much. Uh, I really enjoyed combing through these issues with you. If anyone has questions about the arts or questions for us to tackle next week on hats, uh, feel free to tweet us at hashtag EHGH. We respond to every tweet that we get uh, and would love to hear the way that you yourself interpret this world of eat hair, grow, grow hair. hair. This podcast was produced by Peer Pressure Productions. Join the peer.